take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would. Um, appreciate the opportunity this morning. It's a little better circumstances than what it normally is. Normally, uh, Pastor Jeff is sick. <laughs> but um, today, they're uh, out kind of getting some uh, rest and relaxation. And uh, I think they're going to church there in Great Falls. But um, appreciate the opportunity to fill in for them once again. And it's always an honor to open God's Word. And uh, to you, dear folks, um, the Berean Baptist Church, the ones who um, are going to search the Scriptures daily, whether those be so. So I uh, have a little bit of accountability this morning, knowing that hopefully you'll go and check the Scriptures and make sure what I'm saying is correct. Um, so anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. down here. And uh, we're going to read uh, verses uh, 7 through 15. 7 through 15. The, verse 7 says, For we walk by, fi- by faith, not by sight. And uh, we have a daughter named Faith, and we uh, had people give us a hard time. Um, when, she was, when she was little, they would say, O ye of little faith, and all of that. Um, so... Anyway, um, we've enjoyed having a little little daughter named Faith. Um, we walk by faith, and so every time I'm walking by her, we say that verse. I'm walking by faith now, uh, not by sight. So anyway, we walk by faith, not by sight. And then verse number eight, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciousness. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give uh, give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For... Whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And let's have a word of prayer again. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to be here today, to look into your word together as a church body. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, equip us, challenge us, comfort us, um, convict us of sin, um, help us to grow today. And uh, I pray that um, we would all be responsive to what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'd like to begin this morning by sharing a brief story. While walking home from work one night, a, a man decided to take a shortcut. The shortcut led through a cemetery. Well, it was night and dark, and and so as he was walking, he never did see the freshly dug grave until he fell to the very bottom of it. And so for the next 30 minutes, he desperately tried to climb out of this freshly dug grave, but to no avail. You see, the walls of the grave were much too steep and slippery, so he gave up. And exhausted, he decided that he would just have to wait till morning to be rescued. So he sat down at one end of the grave and began to just doze off. But he was suddenly awakened by a second man who had just fallen into the same grave. 
Well, the first man didn't say a word, but simply watched for two hours as the second man struggled to escape. Seeing that his effort was to no avail, the first man couldn't help himself, so he stood up, walked to the other end of the grave, tapped the the second guy on the shoulder and said, you know, you're never going to get out of here. Well, needless to say, the second guy did get out of there and he shot out of that grave like a rocket. You see, sometimes all we need is a little motivation. There was a lady who worked at the dental office and she wrote this story. At the busy dental office where I work, one patient was always late. So once when I called to confirm his appointment, he said, you know, I'll I'll be about 15 minutes late. That won't be a problem, will it? No, I replied, we just won't have time to give you anesthetic. Well, needless to say, he arrived early for that appointment. You see, we just need a little motivation. And this morning, as we read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 in the passage we read, uh, we find some motivators in the life of Paul. Um, He gives us some some motivations that uh, we may have maybe in the back of our mind as we live for Christ and as we go along our Christian journey, but... But Paul here is trying to bring them to the forefront of the minds of the Corinthians and also in our minds as well. As we determine what, what moves us, what motivates us to serve the Lord, what motivates us to give Him our time, our talents, our treasure, what should be motivating us in our lives. And these are not you know, fleshly motivations that uh, people here in this world have. A lot of people have the motivation of becoming rich, of uh, you know, becoming famous and rich and famous and having power and popularity. Uh, those are some motivations that uh, a lot of people in this world have. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gives us some scriptural, biblical motivators that should propel us to live for the Lord in this day and age. And I'd like to share those three motivators with us this morning, some Uh, scriptural truths that should motivate us to honor the Lord in our everyday life. First of all, he mentions the day of judgment. The day of judgment in verse number 9, it says, Wherefore we labor, here's kind of saying, here's the reasons we labor here, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul said, you know, this is... Very sobering to me to realize the fact that one day I'm going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for my life. And this is not the only place in Scripture where we find the judgment seat of Christ or the concept that we're going to have to give an account for our life. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, as he writes the first letter to the Corinthians, he mentions this thought here. In uh, chapter number 3, verse number 11, uh, For no other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the work shall try, I'm sorry, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Um, And then it goes on in verse 15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so is by fire. And this is a a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, where one day all of our works are going to pass through a fire. And the things that are wood, hay, stubble are going to be burned up. The things that are of no eternal value. I'm afraid a lot of my life is going to be the wood, hay, and stubble, unfortunately. 
the things done for Christ with the right motive, with the right, um, with the right mentality, the right heart is going to come forth as the gold, silver, and precious stones. And then in Romans chapter number 14, uh, Paul tells the Romans in, verse, in chapter 10, or verse 10 of chapter 14, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So he's trying to remind those of us who are saved, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are going to one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. For our life. Can I remind us this morning it's the judgment seat of Christ? Not the judgment seat of your neighbors, not the judgment seat of your co-workers, not the judgment seat of even fellow church members. You're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that matter, at that moment, it's not going to matter what your parents thought of you, or your friends thought of you, or your co-workers, or even your church members, your fellow church members thought of you. It's going to matter what Jesus thinks of you. And noticed about your life. The day of judgment is a sobering thought. And it's something that we all need to have in the forefront of our minds. Knowing that one day we have an appointment with Jesus Christ. I'll never forget when I had my very first real job. Working at a very wonderful fancy restaurant. The Golden Arches. (laughs) McDonald's. And uh, I was excited to get that job and to be able to get a regular paycheck um, and to be able to, uh, you know, be able to get that money was so nice um, as a 15 and a half, 16 year old. And after working there a few months, it was time for the, um, I, I think it was like the semi-annual review. And uh, we knew that the bosses were watching and to see how good of an employee we were because they were going to sit down with us, tell us what we were doing good, tell us some things we needed to prove upon, and most importantly, explain what kind of raise we were going to get. And so I was excited about that, that, uh, that performance review, but I was also nervous about that performance review. And so the couple weeks leading up to it, I was working hard, making sure that I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing and doing it to the best of my ability because I wanted that raise. I wanted that well done, thou good and faithful servant. And uh, I remember sitting down with my boss and he said, you know, Eric, you know, you're, you're doing well. You're learning the, you know, how to run the register and you're doing well with the customers and uh, we're going to give you a 10 cent raise. That's it? <laughs> 10 cent per hour. I mean, I'd have to work 10 hours to get an extra dollar. I mean, this is crazy. Anyway, uh, one day we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so having that thought in our mind, that should propel us to serve the Lord with fervency and zeal. That should propel us to uh, be willing to sacrifice our time, talent, and treasure to honor the Lord in our life. So the first motivator that Paul had that he mentioned here in this passage is the day of judgment. But then secondly, the second motivator in his life here is the destiny of the unsaved. This was something that moved him and compelled him to serve the Lord. The destiny of the unsaved, and that's found in verse number 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. And knowing the fact that there is a destiny for the saved and there's also a destiny for the unsaved. 
And that destiny for the unsaved is a horrible place called hell. Oh, it was never meant for people. It was designed for the devil and the angels. We know that from what Jesus taught. But yet people do go there. And people are there at this very moment. The terror of the Lord. To really get an idea of what the terror of the Lord looks like, let's turn over to Revelation chapter number 20, if you would, please. This is what's considered the great white throne judgment. So there's a day of judgment for us as Christians where we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But if you're not saved, there's another day of judgment called the great white throne judgment. And this is found here in Revelation chapter 20 in verse number 11. And I saw a great white throne and him, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. So there's a throne and there's nothing around it. In verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the, in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up their, of the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. In other words, the terror of the Lord. And knowing this as a Christian, and looking at my neighbor, knowing that one day, if unless he gets saved, he is going to be part of this judgment, Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are compelled, we are motivated to open our mouths and share the gospel. We are motivated to uh, attend church and to grow as a Christian and and to uh, give financially so that the work can continue, so that there can be a place for people to come and hear the gospel. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Hell is a real place. And unfortunately, people do go there. Luke chapter 16 gives us another description of the terror of the Lord. I invite you to turn over there as well. Luke chapter 16. Verse number 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. These are the words of Christ, by the way. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. When it came to pass that the beggar died, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. It's interesting to notice that the rich man's name is never given, and yet the poor man's name, Lazarus, we know. Because Jesus, remember, he said, depart from me, I never knew you. But he did know Lazarus. Uh, Verse 23, the rich man, in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, And seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great goal fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then here's a prayer request from hell. Verse 27, then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, nay, Father Abraham, but if... One went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Verse 27 and 28 are interesting. Here the rich man had a prayer request that somehow someone would be sent to his brethren so that they would be told about this place so that they would repent and not come to this place. I can't help but think of how many people in hell at this very moment are hoping that one of us will go tell one of their loved ones about Christ so that they don't have to come to that horrible place of torments. Catherine uh, Dangle wrote this poem, Hell, the prison house of despair. Here are some things that won't be there. No flowers will bloom on the banks of hell. No beauties of nature we love so well. No comforts of home, music, and song. No friendships of joy will be found in that throng. No children to brighten the long, weary night. No love, nor peace, nor one ray of light. No blood-washed soul with face beaming bright. No loving smile in that region of night. No mercy, no pity, pardon, nor grace. No water. Oh God, what a terrible place. The pangs of the lost no human can tell. Not one moment's peace. There is no rest in hell. Hell, the prison house of despair. Here are some things that will be there. Fire and brimstone are there, we know. For God in his word hath told us so. Memory, remorse, suffering and pain, weeping and wailing, but all in vain. Blasphemers, swearers, haters of God, Christ rejectors while here on earth trod. Murderers, gamblers, drunkards, and liars will have their part in the lake of fire. The filthy, the vile, the cruel and mean, what a horrible mob in hell will be seen. Yes, more than humans on earth can tell our torments and woes of eternal hell. Wow. One thing I would add to that is the good people church members who've never believed. Young people who grew up in Christian homes who never made the decision to believe in Christ. Good people, politicians, Republicans, conservatives, religious people who never believed will also be in hell. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men 
Do you realize there are 260 chapters in the New Testament? 260 chapters in the New Testament. And there are 234 references to hell and eternal judgment. It would be as if you're traveling down a 260-mile road and 234 times it says, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. Destruction is ahead. Do you think you'd eventually get the picture and get the message? God's word is very clear. There is a hell. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. And that motivated the Apostle Paul. And friend, that should have motivated you and I to have compassion on the lost. To want to share the gospel with those around us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and even complete strangers. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that he felt as if he was a debtor with the gospel. It would be, let's see if I even have any money here. Ah, I do. Hey, I've got a dollar. Okay. Luke, I'd like, to, I'd like you to give this to, to mommy, please. Okay, very good. Now, let me have that dollar back. Okay, when I gave this dollar to him, I gave him a dollar. And I told him I want him to give that dollar to his mother. So at this point, he's debtor to two people. He's debtor to me because he owes me to give him that, give her that dollar. And he owes her that dollar because I've given him the command to do it. God has given us the gospel. Not just to keep for ourselves. Yay, look at me. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I have my sins forgiven. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Yay. It is something to enjoy. It is something to embrace. But it's also something to share. It's also something to give. And so so Luke owes me because I've given him something to give. And God has given us something to give. And so he also owes his mother. So go give that dollar to your mother, please. Okay, there you go. That's all you get. Um, so Paul felt as though he was a debtor to God yes but also to the people who need the gospel and we need to feel the same way so what motivated the apostle Paul well the fact that one day he was going to give an account for his life what motivated the apostle Paul also the fact that the unsaved have a destiny and it's a place called hell And it propelled him to persuade men. But then the third motivator in Paul's life was the display of Christ's love. The display display of Christ's love. Let's look here in verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge. That if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see, what moved the Apostle Paul probably the most was the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know. The Bible tells me so. The fact that Jesus loves him. Look at the word in verse number 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. 
constraineth us. That means propels. That means compels. That means, um, and, and another word for constraint, uh, we, we have another word is restraint. Um, let me give you an example. If I can get this out of here. I have here an average everyday hockey puck. All right. Um, we have several of these around the house now. <laughs> Something is going to constrain this to the ground. All right. And you science buffs and physics buffs, I want you to see if you can tell me what is constraining this to the ground. Anybody know what's constraining that to the ground right now? Gravity. Excellent. That puck is constrained to the ground by gravity. And you know what Paul is saying here, what constrains him to serve the Lord, to persuade men, to give, was the love of Christ. That's what constrained him. That's what moved him. When you stop and think about what Jesus did for us, it does help us to serve him with a little bit more zeal and vigor. Um, when you realize how much he did for us. There have been some amazing displays of love in, in the past, and I'd like to share just a couple quick stories with you. Um, this is about 20 years old. According to the Chicago Tribune on June 22, 1997, parachute instructor Michael Costello, he was 42 years old, of Mount Dora, Florida. He jumped out of an airplane at 12,000 feet with a novice skydiver named Gareth Griffith, age 21. Well, the novice would soon discover just how good his instructor really was. For when the novice pulled his ripcord, his parachute failed to release. <clears throat> Plummeting toward the ground, he faced certain death. But then the instructor did an amazing thing. Just before hitting the ground, the instructor rolled over so that he would hit the ground first and the novice would land on top of him. The instructor was killed instantly. But the novice fractured his spine in the fall, but he was not paralyzed. See, one man took the place of another. One man took the brunt for another. One substituted himself to die so another may live. On May 21st in 1946, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, a young and daring scientist was carrying out a necessary experiment in preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific. In his effort to determine the amount of uranium-235 necessary for a chain reaction, he would push two hemispheres of uranium together. Then, just as the mass became critical, he would push them apart with his screwdriver, thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. Well, even though the young scientist had successfully performed this experiment many times before, on that day, something went terribly wrong. You see, as the material became critical, the screwdriver slipped out of his hand, and the hemispheres of uranium came too close together. And instantly, the room was filled with a dazzling bluish haze. Young Louis Slotin, instead of ducking and thereby possibly saving himself, tore the two hemispheres apart with his hands consequently interrupted the chain reaction. 
from his instant heroic act, he saved the lives of seven other people in that room. And as he waited for the car that was to take them to the hospital, he said quietly to his companion, you'll come through all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. He was right. See, nine days later, he died in agony. Took the place so that others would live. Back in the days of the Great Depression, a Missouri man named John Griffith was the controller of a great railroad drawbridge across the Mississippi River. One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old son Greg with him to work. At noon, John Griffith put the bridge up to allow ships to pass and sat on the observation deck with his son to eat a lunch. Time passed quickly as they enjoyed talking. Suddenly, he was startled by the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch and noticed it was 107, the Memphis Express, with 400 passengers on board. It was roaring toward the raised bridge. He leaped from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower. And just before throwing the master lever, he glanced down for any ships below. There, a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to leap into his throat. You see, Greg, his son, had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen to the massive gears that operate the bridge. His left leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears. Desperately, John's mind whirled to devise a rescue plan, but as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew there was no way it could be done in time. And again, with alarming closeness, the train whistle shrieked in the air. He could hear the clicking of the locomotive wheels over the tracks. But that was his son down there. And yet there were 400 passengers on the train. John knew what he had to do. So he buried his head in his left arm and pushed the master switch forward. The great massive bridge lowered into place just as the Memphis Express began to roar across the river. John Griffith sacrificed his son to save 400 passengers on that train. These are amazing stories, but friend, they pale in comparison, pale in comparison to the sacrifice that God made when his son hung upon that cross for you, for me. Medical doctor provides a physical description of a crucifixion. Allow me to read that to you. The cross is placed on the ground, and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrists. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly slags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. 
Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's almost over now. The loss of tissue fluids reaches a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. Tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. All of this, the Bible records with the simple words, and they crucified him. And this is just the physical aspect. Far more importantly, far more agonizing was the spiritual truth that he became sin for us and suffered an eternal amount of torture for us. The display of Christ's love moved Paul to action. May it move us to action as well. Isaac Watts wrote these words, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. Oh, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. I love this thought. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, demands my life, demands my all. The love of Christ constraineth us. Does it constrain you? What motivates you? Today, let's get the day of judgment, the destiny of the unsaved, and the display of Christ's love from the back of our mind, which we all know as Christians. Let's move them to the forefront and let them motivate us to serve Him, to live for Him, to give to live a godly Christian life. Because, friend, these things are not just wonderful thoughts. They're facts and truths that we need to allow to motivate us to serve Him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for the opportunity to look at these biblical, scriptural motivators in our lives. 
Lord, help us to put away the petty, temporary motivators that so many in this world have. Help us to remember that one day we're going to stand before you and give an account for our life. Lord, help us to remember the fact that people without Christ are going to perish in a horrible place called hell. May that move us to be bold in our witness. And Lord, when we consider all that you did for us on the cross of Calvary, may that move us to love you. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for loving us with so great an amount of love. You love us with an everlasting love. Amazing. Help us, Lord, to return that love to you with our life and with our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.